The sovereignty of God is a doctrine that is often untouched for many different reasons. It is a doctrine that often goes neglected for, again, many different reasons. But it is also, for the child of God, one of the most precious doctrines to study, to examine, and to cherish Of the events that are taking place in our world today, Dustin Benge, provost at Union School of Theology, said, quote, The world is not falling apart. It's falling together into God's sovereign plan. This morning, that's exactly what we're going to spend our time looking at is this sovereign God who has a sovereign plan that he works according to his sovereign will. My hope is that we would look up and see a big God who reigns above us. That we would get a sense of the majesty of God's sovereignty. That we would look beneath us and see that we are standing on the solid immovable rock of a sovereign God's promises. Then we would look behind us to see a long history of a sovereign God's faithfulness. That we would look right in front of us to see that this same sovereign God, His presence is imminent with us at all times. Why? Well, for one, we ever need to be reminded of this most precious doctrine. For as I said, it is a great comfort and it serves as an inexhaustible fountain from which we draw plenty of motivation for worship. But secondly, because of the condition of our world, I need not explain to you what the major headlines are today for you to know quite well that there is plenty out there of motivation for fear and anxiety in the headlines. That doesn't even begin to include all that is transpiring in your personal life as you sit here this morning, whether it be at work or your personal relationships or your health or the health of a loved one and so on and so forth. You have plenty going on in your own life that is very good at filling your heart with fear, sadness, anger, frustration, discouragement, and at least anxiety. So, this morning, I want to stir you up. Not by preaching some sort of rah-rah, motivational, self-help kind of sermon, but I want to stir you up by reminding you, church, How strong, how mighty, how powerful, how wise, how in control of all things at all times our God is. Because He will never fail you. With that in mind, please take your copy of God's Word And turn to Isaiah 46 if you haven't already. When you get there, please stand with us in reverence of the Word of God. The title of today's sermon is Secure in the Hands of a Sovereign God. Isaiah 46, verses 8, 9, and 10. This is the Word of the Living God. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, period. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We come before you this morning, Lord, and we're so grateful to be in your presence, to sing your praises to the King and all his beauty. It is that King that we are here to learn about and to hear directly from through the pages of the written word. Father, I pray that you would empower my feeble attempt to express and convey your sovereignty, that you would use this feeble attempt by the power of your Spirit to encourage and exhort the believers here. I pray that Christ would be lifted up and exalted this morning in this sermon and in our hearts, and that we would leave here today not saying good sermon, but saying what a good God we have. I pray for this in the name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. As you see in your bulletin, I have one major heading for us today. I'll go ahead and explain to you what we're going to do. There is one major heading with a few sub-points under it for those of you who will be taking notes, which I hope is everyone. And then my goal is to close this sermon with three points of application. So, behold the sovereignty of God. And by behold, I mean to apprehend this doctrine and gaze upon the glory of God. I want you to understand this doctrine as best as our finite minds can, of course, so that it causes you to be awestruck in the sight of your God. One of the reasons why I unashamedly love Reformed theology and why I preach from a Reformed perspective is because it makes a big, big deal about a big, big God. In other words, he's not wimpy. He's not soft. He's not waiting for mankind to give him permission, pretty please, to do what he wants to do. He isn't uncertain. He isn't wishy-washy. He isn't a coward. He isn't a backpedaler. He isn't a liar. He isn't some nebulous force of good vibes. He isn't afraid. He isn't sinful. He isn't anything like us. No, He is absolutely perfect and absolutely holy and absolutely in control. The sovereignty of God is a beautiful, comforting, worship-inducing doctrine that I believe every Christian ought to cherish. But what does it mean to say that God is sovereign? I think if we went around the room, everyone would say yes and amen. I believe that God is sovereign. But do we understand what that means? What are we saying? Are we saying that God is very powerful? Are we saying that God is able to answer your prayers? Are we saying that perhaps God is quick on his feet and he's able to react in a good way when bad things happen? I think that this is probably a lot of our idea of what we mean when we say God is sovereign. While God is certainly powerful and he is certainly able to answer every prayer, this thinking of his sovereignty falls woefully short of grasping what this doctrine entails. I love how R.C. Sproul put it. Quote, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is God's favorite doctrine. And it would be your favorite if you were God. End quote. Many theologians have defined this by saying, and listen to the profundity of this definition, that the sovereignty of God is the Godness of God. Anyone feel like you could have come up with that one? But it captures so well exactly what we're saying. It is the Godness of God. It is His absolute rule over all things, at all times, in all ways. In other words, it is what makes God, God. It is God having the right and the ability 
to do whatsoever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases, by any means he pleases. Our text that we just read illustrates this quite well, doesn't it? We're going to take a brief look at this passage to set a foundational understanding of this attribute of God from which we will then build upon. So what's going on here in Isaiah 46, the Lord is rebuking the Israelites for their idolatry. He's exposing how utterly absurd idol worship is and showing then, by contrast, why He alone is God. What separates Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the God of Israel, what separates Him from idols, from Nebo, from Baal? What separates Him? Look at verse 2. He says of these idols, they stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. These idols that the Israelites were bowing down to weren't able to relieve their burdens, for they couldn't even keep themselves from being carried off into captivity with their worshipers. In other words, when Israel went into captivity, their idols went along with them because they couldn't save their own self. Look down at verse 5. God speaking, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the person weigh out silver in the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. God asks, who will you compare me to? And he proceeds to display the folly of their idolatry. He goes on to describe the process of making an idol to illustrate his point. This is what happens. Is a person takes gold or silver, takes it out of their purse and gives it to a goldsmith and says, here's the particular kind of God I would like to bow down to, shape him and form him in this particular manner after this particular likeness. And then after the goldsmith finishes forming and shaping gold and silver from a person's purse, then they set it up and they fall down and they worship. How absurd. How absolutely ridiculous. This thing that you're bowing down to came out of your purse. And lest we be too quick to laugh and scoff at this form of idolatry, you and I do the same thing today. We might not form and shape gold and silver and bow down physically, but we sure do love to worship the things that come from our wallet, don't we? The things that can be purchased. Brands, vehicles, homes, clothing, vacations, safety, and comfort. These are idols, can be at least. But the point here is that this God that's receiving their adoration and honor, this God has to be carried and set into place by its worshipers. And worse, can't even move. It can't hear. It can't speak. As we read in our call to worship, there's a mouth, but it can't speak. A nose, it can't smell. Ears, it can't hear. Throat, it can't speak. What are you doing bowing down and pleading with this idol? This idol is a pathetic excuse for a deity, and their worship of it is a humiliating attempt to replace the Most High God. By contrast, let's look at verse 3. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry 
and will save. Do you see the stark difference? These idols have to be made and carried, but this God is the one who makes and carries. The Lord is making a very clear statement that He is not one of a slew of other gods to choose from. He isn't perhaps the best option out of all of the gods that you could choose to worship, but He is the only choice as He is the only true God. This is what's going on as He moves to begin to define His Godness. What makes Him God? What truly illustrates that God is God? Look at verse 8 again with us. Remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. He tells them to call to mind the faithfulness that He has already displayed in the past. These gods can't speak, but this other God has spoken and freed them from Egypt. These gods can't save, but this God has saved them countless times. These gods sit. This other God acts. And they have seen it in the parting of the Red Sea and the exodus from Egypt in the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. Look at what God points to to define what makes Him unique. What makes Him distinct and set apart? It's His sovereignty. Look at verse 9. For... I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is not none like me. Okay, well, what makes you different? Why is there none like you? Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. What sets God apart is His absolute sovereignty over all things at all times. What sets God apart is the divine prerogative to accomplish all of His purposes. Do you see anywhere in there, if you pretty please will let me, I will accomplish my purpose? Anyone? Does anyone see in there If you would pretty please help me, I need help accomplishing my purpose. Does anyone see that? No, of course not. He says, I will accomplish. I, meaning God will do it. Whether you are involved or not, God will do it. Will is an absolute certainty that it's going to happen and accomplish. That means it's going to be completed completely, not halfway done, not kind of, sort of, not almost, a hundred percent of God's plan will be completed by God himself. Notice that he tells us very clearly that this is what makes God, God. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that haven't even taken place And he has declared that his counsel is going to stand and he accomplishes all his purpose. Not some, not a few, not most. Not he's trying his hardest. Perhaps with enough help from enough Christians, he's going to do it. No, he will accomplish all of it. What does this mean? It means that in eternity past, that is before Genesis 1-1 ever happened, That God Almighty already had a purpose and a plan for all of creation. It was already there. Before let there be light, there was a purpose to bring this specific creation into existence. Get this, exactly the way that He did. There was a purpose to ensure that all things would play out exactly the way that they have. There was a purpose for the cross to happen. And there was a purpose for His triumphant return at the end of time. And all of this was the purpose, for the purpose of bringing Him maximum glory. 
Trust this this morning, church. If there had been another way to do anything that would bring God more glory, he would have done it that way. Because God is going to be glorified. And it's going to depend on him fulfilling his perfect plan. Nothing in history, nothing, please hear me clearly this morning, nothing, nothing at all, not the worst atrocity you can possibly imagine has ever happened in all of human history or is currently happening anywhere on this planet. And nothing ever will happen in all of God's creation that is outside of His purpose. Nothing. Nothing. The fall, the Tower of Babel, David and Goliath, Israel's backsliding, the coming and crucifixion of the Savior, the martyrdom of the apostles, Polycarp being burned at the stake, the canonization of Scripture, the Protestant Reformation, the lightning that almost struck Martin Luther, the rise of Adolf Hitler, World War II, the invention of the iPhone, the cup of juice that you spilled as a child, Hurricane Ida, every tyrannical idea that has ever crossed our current administration's mind. Everything is under the absolute and total sovereign rule of God and it all serves His purpose. And with that, we could go home, but we're not going to. This is the godness of God. To quote R.C. Sproul one more time, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. Our God reigns, and it must be so. For if He were not reigning, then someone else would be reigning. If God is not reigning, then the maverick molecule is If God does not reign, then Satan does. If God does not reign, someone else does. Now, how can I possibly say all of this? Because God told us that He has declared the end from the beginning. And that He will accomplish the full measure of His purpose. If anything, at any time, is outside of the purview of His divine rule, then He's not truly the sovereign one. Someone or something else is. In addition, that God reigns to this extent is the message all throughout Scripture. And that's what we're going to do now. I told you I had three sub-points. We're going to look at three basic areas to demonstrate that this is true. To be sure, we could be much more detailed, much more specific, much more thorough. But for the purposes of this sermon, here are the three areas that we're going to look at. First, God's sovereignty over creation. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You've heard that one before, haven't you? We all know that passage. Perhaps many people that aren't even in the faith know that passage. But have you ever stopped to just ponder the events of Genesis 1? In the beginning, before anything was. In other words, God already was before the beginning. He already was. He already is. He already existed. He was there at the beginning. Nothing had happened yet. Nothing was yet created. He could have created all of this however He saw fit. He could have made the sky to be orange. But He didn't. Why? Because he chose to make it blue. He could have made humans to have four legs, but he didn't. Why? Because he chose to give us two. He could have made 60 genders like they think today, but he didn't. Why? Because he chose to make male and female. The moon and stars don't have to light up the night sky. The West Texas sunsets don't have to be so beautiful. Food doesn't have to taste good. Sometimes I wish it didn't. Food doesn't have to taste good. We don't have to all look different. The brain doesn't have to be so complex. Animals don't have to exist. But all of these things are as they are, for it pleased God to do it this way. How do we know that? Because after he created everything, what did he say? It is good. 
In other words, it pleased him to do it exactly how he did it. If you've ever read Job, you know the tracing of God's sovereignty is all over that book. And yes, it even talks about his sovereignty over creation. In Job 38, when God is answering back to Job's complaint, I love it. He asks Job in a way to put him in his place. Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? In other words, who in the world are you? He says, brace yourself like a man. I have questions for you and you will answer me. What were his questions? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? What are the bases of the foundation of the earth sunk on? It says that he said to the sea, Thus far shall you come and no farther. On and on God goes with display after display of his exalted authority over all of creation. Job knew this very well though, as illustrated in chapter 26 when he was replying to Bildad. Verse 7 says that he hangs the earth on nothing, like an ornament, hangs, it in this earth, hangs the earth on nothing, and it still stands. We learn later in Hebrew 1 that not only does he hang the earth on nothing, but he upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. Jonah also knew of God's sovereign rule over his creation. The Lord sent a storm as Jonah tried to escape by ship. God commanded a whale to, to swallow Jonah. He commanded a whale. Have you read Jonah? It literally says that he commanded the whale. And guess what? The whale listened. The whale went and swallowed Jonah. Then... God commanded a tree as Jonah was sulking on the beach. He commanded a tree to cover Jonah, to protect him from the heat. God even commanded a worm to eat the tree, to uncover Jonah. Much to Jonah's chagrin, he wanted to kill himself. Storms, whales, trees, and worms all obedient to his command. The disciples knew this too, didn't they? Mark 4 details the time when the disciples were terrified of the storm that hit them as they were out at sea. And Jesus displayed his authority over the elements as he came up from a nap and told the waves to be quiet. Think of this. Water and waves, storms from the ocean, hurricanes, they absolutely destroy cities when they make landfall. Hurricane Katrina cost the U.S. some $176 billion. $176 billion with all of the military might and technological prowess the United States possesses. We were powerless against the hurricane. But God could have stopped it with a word. One word. He could have rebuked the proud waves and they would have run back into the Gulf of Mexico like a scared puppy. But, as you know, he didn't. Not because he's powerless to do so, but because in some way that is beyond our limited capacity for understanding, that hurricane serves God's purpose. Here's the thing with God's sovereignty. Is that you and I have to admit that we don't know everything. And that sometimes God is going to do things or not do things that we're not going to understand. Just like when Jesus was in the upper room and he washed the disciples' feet. The disciples said, what are you doing? You're going to wash our feet? Jesus said, what I'm doing now, you don't understand. But soon you will. And it's the same thing with all of creation. What God is doing 
We might not understand, but will we have faith in him? What about God's sovereignty over rulers and governments? We looked last week at the Passover, and as you remember, the Lord was freeing the Israelites from captivity to the Egyptians. Pharaoh was a wicked wicked ruler and had no interest in listening to the commands of God as he told him to let his people go. It took ten plagues for Pharaoh to finally say, okay, get these people out of here this instant, but why did it take so long? Was Pharaoh stronger than God? Was Pharaoh's will too powerful for the Lord? And he's trying his hardest. Here's plague one. Man, I really thought plague number five was going to work. I don't know why Pharaoh's not listening. I don't know how to make him obey. Or was it something else? Exodus 9, 16. God speaking. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. To show you my power. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you hear that? God rose up Pharaoh. Do you understand what the implications of that are, church? They were enslaved to Pharaoh. They were enslaved in Egypt. And God rose up Pharaoh. Because God's mean... Because God's rude and uncaring and unfeeling? No. So that his name would be glorified and his power would be demonstrated in Pharaoh. So that Pharaoh would have to say that this is the Most High God. So that all of the world would see that this is the Most High God. God did that. In Habakkuk, we see this illustrated as well. The short book begins with Habakkuk crying out to the Lord because it seems to him that God has turned a blind eye to the wickedness of the leaders of Judah. But the Lord responds to him, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Boy, word of faith and prosperity gospel preachers love this text. They take it out of context to say, You won't believe the blessing that God's bringing in your life. You wouldn't believe it if He told you. But you know what God says in the very next line? For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. What? The Lord was raising up the Babylonians for the purpose of bringing judgment upon Israel. That verse is not about profound blessing that God's going to rain on you and the Mercedes and sow a seed into the ministry to get a nicer car. God is raising up a nation to bring judgment on Israel. Do you hear what I said? God was raising up the nation. God did that. As you know, they were taken into exile by the Babylonians as judgment For their constant, unrepentant sin. And God did that. God raised up the nation, gave them power, and sent them to execute His judgment. Babylon was an incredibly ruthless political force. And Nebuchadnezzar was their famously awful king. This king thought that he was so powerful, so mighty, that he was indeed God. He told Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that he was going to throw them into the fiery furnace for not bowing down to his golden image. And he asked them, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, famous last words. It was arrogance of the highest order. And you especially see this as you read through Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel as the Lord speaks of raising up Nebuchadnezzar for his own purpose. Thus, since he had so exalted his heart against the Lord, taking all of the credit and glory for his kingdom, what did God do? God humiliated him. Daniel chapter 4 records that the king was driven out from among men to live in the field with wild beasts. 
He was made to graze the field like an oxen. His nails grew like bird's claws and his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. In other words, God caused this great and powerful king to lose his mind. I love what he says after the Lord restores his sanity after several years. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And get this, none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar knew to look up to the majesty who reigns on high. And he readily confessed that no, not even a great and powerful king like himself can tell God what he can and cannot do. Proverbs 21.1 shows us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. Why do we currently have wicked rulers who love, the support, who love to support the dismemberment of babies through abortion, who would leave people they are to protect in the hands of murderers in a different country? And why are they growing increasingly tyrannical? Why? Because God has chosen for it to be so. That's why. In other words, Joe Biden is serving the sovereign plan of God to purify his bride and to bring glory to his own name. And long after this administration, this country, and you and I are a blip on the timeline of human history, it will still be said that Jesus Christ reigns. Last third, God's sovereignty over events and decisions. Many of you are familiar with the account of Joseph in the coat of many colors. His brothers were jealous of him, so they sold him into slavery. Through a series of providential events, Joseph eventually is raised up to a position of prominence and power in Egypt. And there's a famine in the land, and the Lord uses Joseph to essentially keep Egypt and the people from perishing. His brothers are coming to confront him and apologize to him in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 because now they need help from their older brother from their brother Joseph and Joseph is the only one who can give them help they need food they're starving and so they come to apologize and what does Joseph say you meant evil against me but God meant it for good. Joseph here is saying, you thought you were in control of this situation, but God was using you for good so that even the bad, terrible thing you did to me still worked out for good. Why? Not because God was quick on his feet, but because God ordained the situation. God wasn't making the best out of a bad situation. He ordained it all to fulfill his sovereign purpose. Job, once again, is another excellent illustration of God's sovereignty over all of the events that take place in our lives and the surrounding decisions. Job lost virtually everything in Job chapter 1. He lost his livestock, many of his servants, and even all of his children. And it all happened suddenly. This was a tragedy of epic proportions. But how could God not stop this from happening? After all, the opening of the chapter says that he was a righteous man who obeyed the Lord. Where was God? Why didn't God protect him in all of this? Because God, in fact, ordained this to happen. And yet, without sin. How could you possibly say that? Job chapter 1, verse 8 God speaking to Satan. 
Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? It wasn't Satan asking, pretty please, can I do something to Job? God brought Job into the equation. God did that. Satan responded to God saying that Job was only so great because God blessed him so richly and he had his hand of protection around him. God tells him essentially, go do what you please with Job for he is in his hands. And what did Satan do? He did just that. Now, how many of us in this situation will wonder why? Why me? Why is this happening? God has abound, uh, abandoned me. And you know what? That would undoubtedly be an understandable way of perceiving the situation. But Job's response is instructive because he fell to the ground and worshipped. And what did he say? He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He recognized in that moment the complete rule of God over his life in all of the affairs that take place. He worshipped God, not just for giving him good stuff, but also when God took them away. Oh, if we could apply this to our life. This is perhaps the biggest thing that people struggle with in thinking in God's sovereignty, is understanding that yes, God does bring bad things into your life. And yes, He does take good things away from your life, all without sin. Well, I just don't believe my God would do that. My friends, he did that to his son, Jesus Christ. And when we grasp the magnitude of what took place on the cross, it becomes so much easier to see you have control over my life, Lord, and you can do as you will. And God sovereignly decreed the suffering and the beating and the eventual death of his only beloved son. Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. It's the apostle speaking. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of the sinful people that were involved in the bad actors in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God had predestined this to happen. Do you see God's sovereign hand over both the events and the decisions? All of the people involved in the suffering of Christ did what was in their heart to do. They hated Jesus. But in doing so, they were carrying out whatever God's hand and His plan had predestined to take place. Every rip of the beard, every insult, every thorn that was pressed inside of His head Every lash, every nail, every strike of the hammer, every agonizing moment where he couldn't catch his breath, every last bit of it was under the sovereign control of God the Father so that he would accomplish all of his purpose. But through the worst suffering, through the worst event in human history, God brought about the most good. Do you see why he must control? All things at all times. Through the sale of Joseph into slavery, he saved an untold millions, an untold multitude in the famine. Through the raising up of Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart, God brought himself glory in the display of his might in freeing his people. Through the controlling of the whale to swallow up Jonah, God brought about the repentance of a wicked people in Nineveh. Through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, God brought about the salvation of millions upon millions of undeserving sinners. Through the martyrdom of the apostles, God brought about the foundation that the church is built upon. In other words, the words of Romans 8.28 are true. That we know that for those who love God, all things 
work together for good. Church, it says all things. Not some things, not most things, not the, not the nice things, not the good things. All things. God is able to cause all things to work together for good, even the worst of things, because He is the cause behind those things. Whether it's getting stuck at the red light, getting caught in a storm on your way home, being yelled at by your boss, being mistreated by your family, losing a family member, getting sick with COVID, not getting sick with COVID, getting a promotion at work, getting fired from work, enjoying a delicious meal. Everything, little or big, small or big, or large, or profound, or bad, or good, everything is brought into your life, is under the sovereign control of God to bring about some good. Can you accept that? You see, we might not understand it right now, but one day we will. We might not understand in the midst of turmoil, why would God do this? But one day we will. And you know what we can know in the midst of everything? Is that he's doing it to make you more like Christ. If he's allowed you to get sick, if he has ordained cancer, if he has ordained good health, if he has ordained whatsoever it is for your life, it is to make you more like Jesus. All of it. And he's in control Every single step of the way. Here are your three takeaways. First, to remember you serve a sovereign God. The passage we opened today's time together with started with remember. And how much good we would do ourselves and our souls if we would only remember. Remember these truths. Remember his promises. Remember his past faithfulness to you. Remember that He has carried you through this far. Remember that He will never leave you or forsake you. Remember that every good and perfect thing comes from Him. Remember eight Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good. So I can know if something horrible is happening in my life, it's only because God intends to cause this to work out for some sort of good in my life and His glory and accomplish His sovereign plan. Remember to not worship the creation, but the Creator. Remember, remember, remember. Number two, rejoice in the sovereignty of God. As you recall to mind all that He has done, surely you will soon find yourself overflowing with worship. Back in Isaiah 46, this was the issue. They were worshiping idols that can't do anything. So he says, remember what I have done. Moreover, we can rejoice that the God who promises is a sovereign God who can fulfill those promises. You see, I could make a lot of promises to you, and I could mean them with all my heart, but I don't have the ability to accomplish without fail Every single thing I could promise you. But you know who does is God. And you know who will fulfill it is God. And that is why we can rejoice. And that's why the Psalms, as they worship God for His sovereignty, they say, shout for joy in the Lord. Not because of your situation. Not because terrible things are happening. But rejoice in the Lord. We might often wrestle with the extent and implications of the sovereignty of God, but let us always respond the way Paul did in Romans 11.33. As he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Third and lastly, rest in the sovereignty of God. John Piper said, quote, The presence of hope in the invincible sovereignty of God, drives out fear. I would add that it drives out anxiety when you are uncertain of what will happen, and frustration when things don't work out like you want them to. This requires that one uses faith, doesn't it? 
But we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. So, if you continue to gaze upon the trials that you're going through, how uncomfortable you are, how hard of a time you're having, how difficult things may be, how unfairly you're being treated, how unsure you are of getting bills paid this month, or even how great things are going for you, my friend, you will not find rest for your soul. It's not there. But as you remember that God has promised to never leave you or forsake you, He has promised to sustain you, to strengthen you, and to give you wisdom As we have learned today, God can keep those promises because He is absolutely sovereign. So, when we set our minds on things above by meditating on God's promises and taking them often to Him in prayer, we will find that Jesus' words proved true when He said, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believer, You are secure in the hands of a sovereign God. We're going to pray. After I pray, we'll stand and we'll sing a song together and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we praise you and we worship you for you are sovereign. You are in control. All things come from your hand. And every good and perfect thing comes from your hand. And we confess that it is so difficult, Lord, to accept bad things as from you. But help us to remember that if anything is coming into our life or happening around us, it is because you're in control of it. And nothing can happen outside of your good and perfect plan to purify your bride and bring yourself glory. So, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to remember these things, rejoice in them, and to rest in Christ's finished work. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would please stand as we sing together.